poetry has become as important to me as any reading and contemplating I do, which is why I'm always eager to remind you about our ongoing initiative, The Poetry Radio Project. It's a place where you can discover the poetry that so many of our guests fold into their lives. And you can also delve deep into reading and listening to the many wonderful poets we've had on the show. Check out one of my favorites, Nikki Giovanni read for us, The Life I Led. You'll also find Naomi Shihab Nye, John O'Donohue, Laylee Long Soldier, and many, many more. All that at onbeing.org slash poetry. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Kevin Kelly. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts, and as always, at onbeing.org. Hello, this is Kevin. I'm doing fine, but I can barely hear you. Okay. Hi, Kevin. Can you hear me? I can hear you much better, Krista. You're okay. much uh, louder. Very, very happy to be able to talk to you today. Well, thank you. Um, so, uh, Chris, are we? What do you think? Do you need? Do you need levels? Uh huh. Okay. Uh, Natalie is okay and rolling. Yes? Yes. Yes. All right. Well, then let's dig in and have a big conversation. Are you, first of all, how far north are you in California? You're, you're in the Bay Area. Is that right? I'm in the peninsula, which is south of San Francisco, so we are not in oh, okay. fire territory, though right. we can smell it. Yeah. It's really hard to see that unfolding. Um, do you have any questions for me before we start? Yeah, why don't you give me a sense of the end time so I know how to pace? Um, well, you don't need to worry about that. I'll, I'll pace us. I'll pace you. But we're probably going to go like 75 to 90 minutes. Okay. And then we will, um, we actually release unedited, the unedited interview, but we'll also craft it into a public radio show and podcast, a produced podcast length. Okay. Okay. Um, but I'll 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 do all the worrying. You just just be present, and we'll talk about important things, which you do all the time anyway. Okay, should ready? Okay. Um, so um, you know, just let me say before I start, there's so much we could discuss, and um, I think there's some directions I've just decided not to go. Like I don't I don't think we'll we may touch on AI. We I don't really want to kind of go down that rabbit hole. Um, but I think you are a perfect person to have a big conversation with about um, to get a, 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 a more expansive perspective on a lot of the questions about our lives with technology that are surfacing right now um, in some dramatic ways. Um, and I thought it was interesting that you... Um, you were, the year of your birth, is this right? 1952 was also the first time the word technology was used in the State of the Union. 
Hello? Yes, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Is that right? That is correct. Um, <laughs> it was very late in the world, and you're right, it was the same year that I was born. Oh, sorry. So, you know, a question I um, often ask at the beginning of my interviews, whoever I'm speaking with, is about wondering about the spiritual or religious background of someone's childhood, however they would describe that. I, I think with you, um, I think I want to ask about the technological background of your childhood, like your, your earliest memories of what this meant as part of life in that time in which you were growing up. And perhaps it's connected to a way you might talk about what is spiritual or religious. Sure. So um, uh, when I was growing up, um, which was in the suburbs of New Jersey, which is really basically the suburbs of New York City, um, technology was really not something that we thought about or certainly did not talk about very much. Yeah. Um, if I had any any um, memories of, you know, what we used and, and how we used it and what its impact on it, um, they were kind of lost because uh, in those days, technology kind of meant like cars, you know, yeah. automobiles, factories. Um, Computers were a thing that we didn't see very much of. Um, I had the unique um, privilege, I might say, or the unique opportunity to see computers very early before many other people saw them. My, yeah. my father was involved in some um, role with computers and took me to a computer show around 1965 or so, I think. Mm. <laughs> and um, I was totally bored by them. They were big cabinets. They didn't seem to do anything. They were nothing like the computers in the science fiction stories that I was reading. They right, just didn't right. seem very real. They were they were kind of like, um, I don't know, cabinets that spewed out um, printed paper. I mean, there was no monitors. There was no screens. Right. Um, they you know, they talked in numbers. And so, uh, I, I just, you know, I was just uninterested in them. I didn't really dislike them. I just was completely bored by them. And so that was kind of, you know, if we talked about technology, or, then it might've been about, um, factories and pollution. Yeah. And so the, the image that I might've had, if you asked me about technology when I was a kid was, oh, that's, that's pollution, it's uh, big factories, it's um, maybe big airplanes and mm -hmm. rockets. Mm -hmm. um, but I grew up in the 60s, and so I, um, I I think one of my dreams as a kid, I'm talking about it's like a middle school kid, was to build a house that recycled everything. Wow, um, you were really ahead of your time in that. Right. Yeah, that was long before the <laughs> ecological movement. And for me, that was just a, um, the appeal was not any kind of righteousness. It was just the the beauty, the logical beauty of it. Mm. It was like having a spaceship mm. that was self-contained. It was, it, there was just a sense of the, this would be beautiful if you had a household that 
could recycle everything and lived on, you know, that required very few inputs. And it was just sort of a beautiful thing logically, and that was the appeal to me. And so I, I started to research how you would do that writing off to, you know, there was no internet. How do you research? I know. I can't so, remember that either. I try to reconstruct how I figured <laughs> exactly things out back right. then. <laughs> so I was writing out to mail order catalogs and getting things and um, sent back to me, um, uh, you know, and going to the library. And that was, so I didn't get very far, but that was the dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was recycling a word then? Was that even the word you used? No, I, I don't think it, you're right. I don't think it was a word. It was, I think I was used the word that you didn't throw anything out. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, actually, like in the 60s, that is where kind of the notion of litter first arrived, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm, not, I'm mm-hmm. not sure where the genesis of I was. I was a science nerd. I, I mm-hmm. read a lot of science books um, I took every single science course that was offered by our school system. And I think this came from thinking about, you know, I had a chemistry lab. I built a chemistry lab in my basement. And I think I had the only chemistry lab in the country that did not make a bomb. And um, I was actually doing, you know, little experiments. And I think it came from thinking about... Um, you know, chemicals and and materials and things like that, um, and maybe space because space was, uh, you know, that was before we were, we were going to go to the moon. Yeah, we were trying to get to the moon. Yeah, and so maybe I was thinking about how you would live in space, and it's like, well, maybe you could build something like that on Earth. Yeah, that was a self-contained um, inhabitant. You know, a habitat that was self-contained. So uh, I, I, maybe that's where the genesis of that came from. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so let's do some definition of terms. Um, the word technology. You you define technology broadly. So just just talk a little bit about what you mean when you use that word. Well, I use it broadly to mean anything that's produced by a mind. And that mind may be an animal mind. So in, in the broadest sense, when a, um, a beaver builds a dam, um, that's technology, just like a human dam would be technology. So it's, it's things that are the product of, of minds. And most of those are, of course, coming from human minds. And so it, the things that don't kind of, they're not born on their own, they're kind of made. So mm-hmm. um, the beaver makes the dam. And um, it's uh, broadly the, a, new, a new domain of things on the planet that sort of would only occur because of life, but are themselves not living. And so um, these these artifacts, these, these processes sometimes that are made and not born, um, it seemed to, seemed to be like a wholly new category. Um, and individually they are. So um, a spoon is kind of a result of living processes and minds, but it's right, not, itself right. is not living. A shoe is not living. Uh, a chair is not living. A car is not living. But 
as we make more and more of these things, the 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 we requires many technologies to make a new technology. So if we hold up your iPhone or your phone, that's a result of thousands of other technologies that are needed to produce that. And, and in the simplest terms, if you're going to make um, a, a a hammer, you kind of need a saw to make the hammer handle, and you need mm -hmm. the hammer to make the saw's blade. And so you have immediately from the very beginning, we've had this kind of codependency of technologies upon each other. And now at this point where we have tens of thousands, if not millions of different varieties of technologies, they all create an ecosystem You're right? That where in order to produce something, a new technology requires hundreds of other technologies. And that ecosystem has many lifelike attributes. So while the individual entities, the, 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 you know, the concrete, the plumbing, the light bulbs are not lifelike, the system as a whole does exhibit lifelike behaviors. And mm -hmm. I call that system as a whole the technium. Yeah. So it's mm -hmm. more than just a bunch of technologies in plural. It is a system that's like an ecosystem mm -hmm. or like an ecology that has its own behavior, and that behavior is an extension of the life force, the evolutionary process that has produced life. It operates in the technium, in that system, in the same way that it operates on living things. And and even as you as you kind of walk through some of the examples of things that you know, that in the 21st century might not necessarily come to mind for people when they think technology, like a dam. <laughs> um, or, you know, I, I look at you, you you spent some years roaming around remote parts of Asia after you dropped out of college, and you talked about really like seeing um, inventions, which I think you would say technologies like aspirin, cotton clothing, metal pots, and telephones as just so fantastic because these things... As you say, they're not living, but but they they become part of our lives and enhance our lives. Even that kind of um, low tech <laughs> dis yes. technology. And, and, and in fact, the low tech probably has more impact uh -huh. on our lives than the high tech. So right now, wherever you are, if you look around, most of the things that we produce with our minds uh, are very old. So we've got you know we've got wood. Tables, you know, um, roofs, concrete, um, metal pipes. Th th these are all ancient, and most of the stuff that is running your life is very, very old. And, but we tend to think of technology as, as anything that was invented after we were born. Yeah. But most of it has been invented before we were born, yeah. and we don't seem to call it technology, but it is. Yeah. And so, and it's not just the hard physical things that would um, hurt you if you dropped on your toe. It's things like a calendar, it's institutional things like a mm -hmm. library. Mm -hmm. It's, um, as you say, it's you know, it's aspirin, it's um, you know, cotton clothing. All these things are as technological as um, as your as your phone. But we don't see them that way, and they have, in some ways, far more impact on us than we kind of realize. And you know, I'm 
I, I find your book, What Technology Wants, to be really important and thought-provoking. <clears throat> and I think, you know, if there's, if there's any piece of your work or thinking that we're going to, like, dip into more, I think it's that one. Um, also because you wrote it, I think, 2010. And because of the pace of acceleration of our technologies, I mean, the world has actually changed a lot in that time. Um, but but one thing you pointed out in that book that has, has been pointed out to me a, just a couple of times um, in the last years, but I always I think it's so important is that the that the word technology comes from the ancient Greek from techne techne, which is like art, skill, craft, ingenuity, and you also use the phrase you know this is about useful arts. Um, that feels very tethering to me as we think about how we live with our technologies. Yeah, it's. Um, it, it was originally seen as um, all the things that people did that were um, useful, but maybe not necessarily beautiful, or maybe not necessarily um, uh, thought provoking, but that were were useful. And um, I think what's happened is is that um, the amount of technology. That we've that we now produce that we surround ourselves with um, is at the point where it's sort of still useful, but it, but it actually um, is affecting us to a degree where um, its beauty or its lack of beauty, its philosophy, its um, its framework is so present that it affects who we are and our identity. And um, if we look at Again, technology in the broadest terms, we discover that, in fact, our own humanity is one of the things that we invented. It's, <laughs> it's in part, a product of our minds. And there are many examples where we humans, over time, have altered our basic body, our genes, by things that we have invented. So um, we invented... Uh, cooking, so we, we we use fire, controlled fire, to to cook, digest food. It's an external stomach to allow us to digest food that our own natural bodies would have difficulty doing, and that extra nutrition changed our bodies, so we became dependent on on cooking for maximum nutrition, and. Uh, it changed our jaws and our teeth. We can see hmm, the yeah. historical evidence of pre-cook people and post-cook people. And so um, and so that was something. That was an in, so, so we, in that sense, are slightly technological. <laughs> and we did the same thing um, with when we domesticated animals. So domesticating herding animals was something that we did on purpose. It was a product of our mind. And that herding animal produced milk. And some large portion of humans developed um, lactose tolerance as adults in order to maximize the nutrition we could get from the milk. And that's another example of how we changed ourselves through technology. And so we became slightly technological. So we have been engaged in remaking ourselves mm -hmm. 
through our minds, which is a type of technology, and we're accelerating that. So yeah. the reason why we're having conversations about technology today is that it's moved from just being useful, which it still is, to something being close to our own identity. And we're now asking ourselves, well, who are we and who we want to be? Because it's very obvious that we have the power to decide that. Exactly. Right. And, you know, you said in your in your TED Talk, um, it's a, you know, technology is force. It's the most powerful, powerful force that's been unleashed on the planet and in such a degree that I think it's become who we are. When you talk about cooking, <laughs> um, you know, that's such an important way to step back and realize, wow, we've, you know, because I, I think one thing we're quite aware of now is how, yeah, as you said, our technologies are now interwoven with our identity and not just changing and shaping our identities, but changing our whole notion of identity, which is huge, changing our notion of something like authority or community, these elemental human experiences. And once you start changing those, then you're throwing a lot of things open. Um, yeah, and, but, and, and, that's, yeah. And, and that's exhilarating and frightening. Yeah. Is, is, is when, because for forever, for ages, there's been among the learned, a kind of idea that the human nature was fixed, that it was um, sacred in some senses, that it, that it was eternal, and um, you could count on it. But if, you, if we now throw up and say, wait, no, we, we, we're undergoing change, this is in flux, uh, human nature is something that's malleable, and by the way, we actually get to choose what it is, that's like... That's very, very scary for a lot of people um, because one, there's no longer the sacred human dignity, the sacred human nature, and secondly, people don't know what they want to be. It's like, yeah, really, uh, we have to, we have to decide. That's, <laughs> that's well, a lot yeah, to decide. and 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 it's an, it is a it is a new experience in this history of our species that this idea that we craft our identities. Because, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's like there are all these new muscles we have to flex because previously we were defined by so many givens, right? Right, our, our right exactly. Our place in the world, our extended families, our tribes, our race, the, you know, the gender right. we were given. Um, so, so I guess, um, you know, if, and, and also I think we're aware it's like the, I, I do feel like in myself but also in the conversations I have like, mm. out in the world, you know, I think – as you say, the acceleration is different with our and with mm-hmm. our technologies, and um, people feel like these things have just landed on them, right? like mm-hmm. landed in our lives, and taken over our lives. And also, we like the people when people invented cooking, they didn't understand really how they were changing their digestion and their bodies. Mm-hmm. But like we mm-hmm. actually know, and not only do we know that this is affecting our brain chemistry. Um, and not only do we feel it, if we if, even if we don't understand the science of that, the creators and the marketers of these technologies are making them addictive. So it feels like, and I and I do want your perspective on this. Feels like we, in some ways, we we are we we have some new things to grapple with because of the nature of our technologies. But I don't know if you think that's true. Is it just a another manifestation of something that's happened many times? No, I, I, I think um, I think there may be slight um, a repeat of the kind of um, 
moving on to uh, new phases, new territory that we've done in the past. But I really do believe that this time is different. It's much more significant. It's a um, it's an existential challenge because we have to define um, who we are and at so many levels. It's not just like who are we as humans, but even in smaller ways, we have to make decisions that we didn't have to make before. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fond of um, uh, an analogy that Peter Drucker, the business guru, talked about, which was, you know, in the old days, he, he meaning like, you know, the 1900s onward, people working in factories or working in jobs, um, your, your assignment was to do the job right, to... Mm-hmm perform as well as you could to, 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 to do it right. Well, that's shifted for workers today. And um, today, it's just not you have to do the job right, but it's much more important that you do the right job. <laughs> and deciding what job to do um, used to be something the, the executives, the executive manager mm-hmm. decided. It's mm-hmm. called the executive function. And what's happened is basically the executive function has dropped down to the, every worker is sort of concerned about doing the right job. So you didn't have to use to think about, am I doing the right thing? But now everybody has to think about, am I doing the right job? And so these kind of decisions that were once sort of pushed upstairs, that were the decisions that rulers decided is is now decisions that everybody has to. And so there's a, you know, further layers of having to decide what we're going to do, what we're about. Besides just the larger ones of what we're as humans, it means like, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? What does yeah. it mean to be an American? Yeah. What does it mean to be, um, you know, a, a social worker? All these questions are, are now at the forefront. So we, 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 we have a whole parade of them and that can be exhausting, I think. I mean, I think we're not really ready for this sort of permanent identity crisis, yeah. a perpetual identity crisis. Yeah. Well, it is it is physiologically stressful, right? And then and then right. we all are going to respond to that in different ways. Right. Um and there are some people mm-hmm. who I think very mistakenly claim that this is all an illusion, the human nature is fixed, it doesn't change, mm-hmm. and this is an assault on you know the the very nature of our humanity and I think of all the the stances of that's the most unfortunate one because I think it's totally wrong. Um, but there will be a group of people who will declare that under no circumstances are they going to change or no circumstances are they going to invent themselves if they're just going to um, continue their traditions. And, um, you know, well, if that's your choice, we should respect that. Um, and th- And that leads me to believe that we might have bifurcations that we might have um, we may have you know polarizations of the likes if we have not seen <laughs> the current political polarization might just pale in comparison to those mm. between those who believe that humanity is something that we invent and uh, will change and those who believe that no our, our job is to is to not change but don't you think that the current that the political polarization is a is a manifestation of th- that kind that unease 
Right. Yes, whether, whether this is not necessarily articulated as that, it gets it gets right. it gets a lot of reasons put on it. Yes, I, I, I think you're right. Um, so, so, so this moment we're in it raises, you know, and again, maybe this is just another degree of a phenomenon that's happened across human history. But we're faced with this realization that we need to. Reckon with the moral force of our technologies, like on many levels, but also manage our lives with technology. And I'm, I'm just curious about how you work with that. And I was very interested, like in, when you wrote um, What Technology Wants in 2010, you said, you, you said, so this would be 2010, you know, seven years ago. I don't have a smartphone, Bluetooth, I don't tweet. My kids grew up without cable, without TV. You had no cable. You said you didn't have a laptop or travel with a computer. Um, is that still true, all of that? No, uh, that's not true. I mean, it's, that was true then, but no, I, have, um, I do have a laptop. Mm-hmm. I do have a smartphone. Um, I tweet, uh, and I do tweet. So... Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah we we change we adapt yeah. um there are, you know there are probably things that um i'm not going to continue doing but i believe is sort of i believe in trying everything at least once I believe that we have to kind of engage in technology by trying it. Mm-hmm. I think we have no, we should have no uh, hesitation about dropping things if they don't work. Um, right. And I think um, we're going to see, you know, social media is I don't know maybe five thousand days old or something. It's it's pretty pretty young, and I think we're going to see people um, become educated over time. Yeah, understand what it's good for. And um, you know, uh, move on. So, it, it, I think it's too much to expect that we can figure out how technology works immediately. Right now, yeah, it's and, too complicated. Mm-hmm. They're they're very complex, and and, and it, it's what I call the the fallacy of thinkism. That we that but this is the idea that by thinking about things we can figure them out. Well, I don't <laughs> right. think that's. True. I think the only way we can figure a lot of these things out is actually by using them Mm -hmm. and seeing what happens. And that may take a couple of years or longer um, to see. And I think we are perfectly, as a collective species, we are capable of modifying our behavior, um, modifying what we do based on how we see it affect people. Um, And so... I, I I think we'll evolve both um, etiquette, social etiquettes about it, and yeah. also um, literacies. Um, you know, you and I and everybody listening spent maybe four or five years of fairly difficult practice and study in order to learn how to read and write. I mean, it it took it took very deliberate teaching correction guidance, learning to figure out all those symbols on the page and how to write them and read them. And so why do we expect that social media could be learned just by, a, by being next to it, by, by just by hanging around it? You can't learn calculus that way. It may be that 
these things require a kind of literacy that has to be done very deliberately. And you may have to be instructed and educated in how to use it properly. And so um, yeah. that, that, that would not be a surprise. Yeah, and I think I, think I experience it's hard for people to just actually step back and take in how new and right. young, like how right. much the Internet is, is in its infancy, <clears throat> because it does feel so powerful, and it is so powerful. Um, I think also there is... Be, but but we are and people who are raising children right now, and my children are you know young adults. Um, so like you could with your kids not, it probably wasn't a discuss. I mean you know it was probably not. You kids didn't get cell phones when they were fourteen, and even when my kids were growing up, um, that got that waited for a, a little bit more maturity. Um, but there's also. These technologies are addictive. Um, I mean, I, I, I've, I've, I felt recently like, <laughs> you know, and we all just kind of adopted them, as you said, like there they were, and we were living with them, and then and in, but, and yes, we didn't have any kind of introduction or training or formation or any kind of space to ask questions of moral imagination. But I'm wondering if we're going to look back like. 20 years from now or 50 years from now and seeing that like like just reflexively buying your preteen a smartphone was like what it would have been to buy your preteen a lifetime supply of cigarettes, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, it, it, we definitely, I think, um, <clears throat> yeah, as you say, we'll look back on things and say, oh my gosh, um, you know, so it's like uh, we were growing up we didn't have seatbelts in cars. Yeah, you know, people right. piled up in front. It was like, what were they thinking? Well, you know, we didn't have that concept of, of safety at all. Um, so I think, yes, I, I think we will, will change our mind. But also at the same time, you know, back then people didn't drive as fast either. And so as you have, you know, standard going 80 miles an hour down a, a highway with bigger cars, um, you, you, the safety has changed. And so I think social media will change in the future as well. And we, we and we'll look back and say, well, my gosh, um, we, we do things differently now. It's, um, that, that, that process of, um, refining things, I, I think is, uh, the necessary, path of um, technology, mm. but I, I actually, um, in what technology wrote, uh, want, wrote about the Amish, because I think the Amish had yes. a great lesson for us in their approach to technology. And let's just, and, I just want to just, you know, point out if people don't know that you did, you did have, you, you had this enduring fascination with the Amish that started a long time ago in your life. And actually one thing that struck me when you, you wrote about being deeply involved in the early years of the online world, one of the things you said is, um, out of complete nothingness, we were harnessing a virtual commonwealth. When the internet came along, it seemed almost Amish to me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so keep going. So, so the, 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 the Amish, for the listeners that don't know, are um, a group of uh, religiously bent um, people, heritage out of um, Northern Europe, who... Um, are seen as being anti-technological, but actually are just 
um, they're just behind. They're just they're just later than us. And the canonical vision of, of the Amish are, are a community who don't have electricity, who do things without much technology. But in fact, the this, this story is a little bit more complicated than that. First of all, the Amish vary parish by parish, community by community in what they do or don't use. Um, and secondly, some of them, particularly some of the older communities, are actually um, more liberal than, say, uh, some of the newer communities in upstate New York. Um, and thirdly, um, they're uh, changing all the time. They're in the process of um, always evaluating the technologies. And it's that process that I found most interesting. I was, I was really um, very, very curious about how the Amish decided what they were going to use and what they weren't. And they're not that much different than most of us because most of us are at the point where we can't use all technologies. There's just too many. Yeah. So we make decisions. And from the outside, our decisions look kind of like crazy, irrational. I mean, um, you know, okay, so I, I have uh, state-of-the-art internet, but we don't have TV. It's like someone said, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and the Amish will have, you know, they'll have um, no cars, but they'll have, um, and no bicycles, but they'll have skateboards, you know. <laughs> they, don't have, they don't have zippers, but they have disposable diapers. You know, it's, it's like mm. you kind of look at it and say, what's the... You know, what's the strategy? What's the theory there? Well, the theory is, is very simply that unlike most uh, Americans, we're individualistic, so we decide individually what we're going to do or not going to do. We're going to, you know, we're going to use email, but we're not going to use Facebook. That's an individual decision. But the Amish are different in this way in that they decide collectively they, they, they have a, a community decides. And so that requires a little bit more articulation of what the criteria is that you're looking. And here's what the criteria that the Amish use implicitly to decide whether they're going to adopt a technology. And the, and the, and the criteria are, are, are basically two things. One is, will this technology strengthen my family, increase my family. So the, mm. the mm. Amish's, their ideal is to have every meal with their children until they leave. They want to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day with their children. And so that means that they tend to want to work near the home and the kids will go to school and come back for lunch. So there has to be somewhere that they can get to themselves by walking or scooter. Um, so, the, and if they have something mechanical, they have the workshop in the backyard, which also, by the way, keeps it clean because it's in their backyard. Mm. And so that's the first thing is, is, is they have, and then they have things like, well, if they bring, um, a phone or, or internet into that disrupts the family life. That's, they don't get the time to spend with their kids right. because the kids are on the, so, so they're going to evaluate everything by how much time they spend with their kids and family growing up. And then the second one is very similar, which is, does it strengthen the community? How much time does it bring them 
and keep them in the community. So the reason why they have horses instead of cars is because the horse can only go 15 miles away. So they have to sh- go shopping, go mm. to church, mm. go to visit, all within 15 miles. That forces them to pay attention, to, to, to support their local neighborhood, their community. And so the, when they had looking at a new technology, like they say, you know, like LEDs or whatever, does it help them do that or does it not? And um, so they now have, they don't have the grid because they found that having, being connected to the grid caused people to um, go outside the community, to go out or not, not spend time with their family. But they have adopted solar powered LEDs. for lighting okay and they're in the process of actually even though they rejected land lines telephones they are actually in the process for many of these communities of adopting cell phones but not smartphones Mm -hmm. so they have the flip phone so you can actually talk to someone but you don't have the smartphone so they have these Amish phones and they have they even have a couple of Amish computers that do word processing but aren't connected to the internet so so they're they're so they're they're not rejecting technology. They're saying we want technology that serves our purposes. Right. And and what the way that they do this is also interesting is they don't think about the technologies. They have Amish early adopters, and these are guys usually in any community who are eager to try new things, and they have to get permission from the bishop. And so the bishop will say, "Okay, Ivan, yeah, you can have." Uh, a cell phone in your truck for work. And here's the thing is you can have that, but you have to be ready to give it up if we decide that we don't like the way that it's affecting you. Right. And so for the next year, they watch, his community watches Ivan to see how that affects his family, his community, his work. And if they don't think that it's a positive, then he has to give it up. So, so it's a community is, yeah. decision. I mean, this is so. This is describing a whole different way for us to think about, like even just the language of like managing our lives with technology. It almost is clearly going to not work, <laughs> just the way you say it that way, because it's like resisting. Um, but you're. This is about. So you know, one of some of the conversations I've had across the years I've got shaping technology to human purposes. You use language like, "Our job is to parent our technologies, our mind children." Um, be stewards of them, like we're stewards of nature. But it's about it's about us taking charge of just getting clear about what we care about and how we want to live, and then letting our and then working with technologies in ways that are nourishing towards that. Yeah, I think I, I think we actually have a little bit more control or management over our technologies than we claim. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit hesitant about the language of these being addictive. There certainly are rewards in place to reward us to use it more. But in fact, we're all making calculations. I mean, every, every single technology has negatives and downsides, disadvantages. And we're basically, we're saying, well, so far, even though there are obvious downsides and disadvantages, the net gain that we get from from this phone, whatever it is, mm-hmm. is more than the negatives. The negatives are real, but 
I'm getting a little bit more good from it than than the negatives. And so we we continue, and I think that um, uh, you know, and we will that we will work on trying to overcome or diminish those aspects um, that just are self reinforcing. Um, but even when they're present, I think we still make the calculation that you know, well, yes, it is slightly um, addictive in that sense of me of being like a sweet being like sugar but we can learn to live with sugar we don't have to Mm -hmm. ban sugar we can say well we'll just minimize that and the good that we get out of sugar the little bits that we have is a positive and so um i I think as we discover what these technologies do how they behave yeah i think we're like parenting We're, we're what we're trying to do is we're trying to find a good job for this yeah you know it's like uh, technologies, we don't even know what they are when they first invented it. It took a long time to figure out all kinds of things from the phonograph to to the cinema, what they're going to be used for, what, what role they play in our lives. Yeah. And we have to try different things, just like a young adult will try different things before they can kind of get set on their career. And I think um, w- some of the technologies that are problematic for us right now, we're going to go through trying different things with them until we find a, a good role for them in our lives. And it may not be where they started out. Yeah. And um, what we do know is we cannot prohibit or make them disappear or right. go away. Um, it, that's impossible. What we can just do is we can move them into different roles. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, one thing that has also evolved pretty rapidly between the time you first started doing being involved in this and writing about it, even in the last few years, is how it is the incredible power and kind of increasingly consolidated ownership of um, the digital world by some re- by some companies that are kind of more powerful than any political superpower ever was in some ways in terms of how many lives they reach. So, so you know, the, the phrase, what technology wants, um, for you, is a, an intriguing phrase that also has human agency in it in terms of how we respond to that. But I think there's this feeling now that that what's all woven together with what technology wants in the sense you meant it, we also have what Steve Jobs wanted and what Mark Zuckerberg wants and what Facebook wants us to do next. And behind those companies, you have philosophies like, you know, move fast and break things, and you have this core value of disruption. And it turns out those aren't, those are at odds, I think, with a lot of what we want as human beings, in fact. I don't know. How do you respond to that? Yeah. um, Well, a lot of the great um, new wealth um, from the big mega companies like the Googles, the Amazons, Facebooks, are the result of a mathematical inevitability um, around networks called the network effects, which is that the value of a network increases by the square of the number of members, which means that you have exponential increase in value for just kind of a geometric increase in the number of people. So adding a couple more people gives you four or five, you know, it's, it's 10 times. You, you, you add, uh, you know, 10% more, you get 100% more 
value. So what that also means is that we have this effect of, you know, the bigger get even bigger because the bigger it gets, the more powerful it gets, the more powerful it gets, the more attractive it gets for people to come onto the network. So you you have these network effects, which means that um, things balloon up. You have kind of one or two winners that seem to take all. That is just the natural effect of networks. We're going to see it again and again and again. And there are many benefits from that. So there's huge ecosystems of businesses and individuals who follow, play into that ecosystem, and they also are rewarded. Um, so there's an advantage of having kind of these standards, like just like there's an advantage in speaking English or having a uniform spelling. The English won, but there's an advantage of having a shared um, language, a shared spelling, whatever it is, because you know so many people can write books. Now you have you know you have a market for for every author that's bigger than if you just had you know a million little languages. So that network effects is going to we're going to see more and more of it. It's going, it's going, there's going to be natural monopolies that come into these things, and. Um, it would be horrible for the long term, except for the fact that all these natural monopolies are very short-lived. They all have, um, <laughs> they all unravel almost as quickly mm-hmm. as the next big thing comes along, which will be AR, or, you know, virtual reality or AI, whatever it is. So, so while they're there, there's some social benefit to having them. But the, what's new, what we what we haven't really figured out is that when you get to the scale of We've never had these networks at this large, so there's almost like two billion people on yeah, Facebook. Yeah, like so many, so many human beings. Right, uh. so many human beings. And what's happened is, that in fact, these platforms have are at such a scale that they're basically they're quasi governments. Yeah. And yeah. so, this was no, nobody had thought about this. This was not anybody's intention, but in fact, the Facebook and the Googles have become quasi-governments, and they have to shift into a new mode, which we have never experienced before, which is this kind of corporate quasi-government, mm-hmm. which means that they have to treat customers more like citizens, which means they have some of the other duties that governments have of fairness and equitable access and stuff that corporations haven't really had to deal with before. And... I don't think this is going to go away. This is going to become mm-hmm. the new normal, and so we're going to have to evolve, um, you know, new standards, new practices, new, new expectations of how these new entities work. When you have a platform of two billion people that you're trying to govern, that has great effect on democracy and yeah. speech, what do you do? Well. It's crazy to beat on the CEO for not doing a better job because <laughs> nobody has ever done this before. We don't right, have any right, idea right. what's going to be involved, and everybody's making this up as they go along. So, um, so this is going to be a, a process, and it's exciting uh, because it's brand new, and there's great power there, but there's going to great potential for good. So. Um, I, I think we have to, you know, be vigilant, but we should also be humble and kind at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something, something 
strangely relaxing about like just realizing, oh, this is a long-term project. We weren't supposed, we couldn't possibly have known how to do this last year, and it's going to take more than six months. <laughs> it's going to be like a generation right. or two. Or right. Yeah. It's it's really helpful. Um, you know, one of the um, one of the interesting points you've made across the years that is just not something I've heard anyone talk about in this way. You wrote a, a piece called The Next 1,000 Years of Christianity. Um, and so one of, the, one of the phenomena, I mean, there's so many kind of previously very fixed forms of identity that are shifting and, and unraveling as we've known them. And one of those is, is re- religious identity that people are kind of born into. And, and, and I think that there's also kind of a sense that, that those things are incompatible with our kind of level of technological advance. And you, you pointed out that, the, and this is language of yours, the bounty of change we, re- we reap from science and technology has its roundabout roots in the Christian perspective. And the, you've said that although it was not visible to medieval monks or illiterate churchgoers in the year 1000 AD, science was embedded in the values of the Christian church. It took a few generations of technology to expose and release this force. Such an interesting point to make in Western civilization. Yeah, the, 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 um, I'm an Asia-holic, um, a married Chinese and um, if you study the history of China, it's really remarkable because almost every single invention in the pre-modern world was invented in China often hundreds of years before it was reinvented in the West. It's from, you know, steel to, of course, paper, paper money, movable type, uh, suspension bridges, the rudder, the compass, all, all these things. Um, were invented in China, and China seems to have invented everything except they missed the one single uber uh, meta invention, the the biggest invention of all time, which they did not invent the scientific method mm-hmm. that was invented in the West. And there's you know there's been a huge scholarly question and investigation of why the Chinese missed it. And, um, and from my reckoning, there, there, it's a very comp- there, there are lots of reasons, but one of the reasons was just the um, philosophical environment um, which the Chinese uh, had, which prevented them from questioning authority and stuff. But um, remarkably, that, that Christianity did encourage um, in the West, and so there were some other ideas, kind of in the the basic framework of Christianity, like the fact that there was a um, a law, a, a, a laws that that were operating, and things like that. So you were you were kind of trying to discover what those laws were. So there was there was a bunch of things in the basic perspective of early Christianity that was conducive to the scientific method and helped it um, birth um, way outside of China. And, um, and so 
that was instrumental, but I think um, the traditional religious beliefs around the world um, are at a, a threshold right now, a crossroads, as we undergo this phenomenon that we talked about earlier of redefining who we are. And um, so far, their answers aren't as... Their answers that religion have had about who we are are not as useful as they once were. And um, they'll have to change if these religions will remain useful in the future. And I think one of the biggest shocks to the traditional, particularly Abrahamic religions, the people in the book, the biggest shock will be um, the invention of AI. Mm -hmm. Because... AI, you know, if, if right now today, if, if you could, the one single event that would really challenge every single uh, traditional religion would be a visitor from, would be an ET, would be an alien contact. Contact with a completely different civilization from a different planetary system in the galaxy or beyond. That would shake up because whatever whatever they believed, it doesn't matter. They would just like if they believed in Jesus, that would be like that would just shake up things. If they didn't believe in God, whatever it was, it's going to shake up uh, the current um, religions. It'll be a shock. Well, who knows if we'll ever? I, mean, I believe they're out there, but who knows if we'll ever have contact mm-hmm. with them in in the near future? But it's a hundred percent certain that we're going to create artificial aliens on this planet, and they're called AIs. Mm-hmm. And when we do, we will have the same, they will produce a very similar shock to the established religions because we'll have the question of where they fit into the scheme of things. If, if, they, if we do make them with some levels of consciousness, then the question of whether they have souls and... If they do, where do they fit in? If they don't, why don't they? And so um, it's going to really rock the current um, established religions, and um, they'll have to adapt, incorporate, change with this new invention. And um, uh, they don't seem to be ready for that, but... Um, nobody's ready for it. Yeah, right. I mean, I would also, I would also see it from a little bit different direction. That th- these these deep traditions, in fact, are where we have where humanity has contemplated, and in fact, c- contemplated not just what it means to be human, but who we are to each other, and in fact. You know, Christianity, Judaism, um, the, the Abrahamic traditions, were, you know, were pioneers in saying my well-being is connected to something larger than just my family, my kin, my tribe. Right. These traditions haven't yeah. always modeled that. Like, I mean, I right, feel like right. like that idea is what humanity needs to learn now in a globalized right. interconnected world and if these traditions could like offer up this thing that is at their heart it's like as relevant as it's ever been yeah no i mean i i think um, and, and i think there's another way in which they have 
rehearse the future, which is that, um, you know, my reading of the kind of um, inherent heart of Christianity, which is 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 that um, you have a creator who created a being in its own image, which make that being a creator who's going to create beings in its own mm, image. Mm-hmm. And so we have you have this lineage. You 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 have the framework for understanding the fact that we're going to recapitulate this whole thing. And, and so um, there should be some wisdom um, about that. Of how you know, okay, here you have we are created beings, and then we're going to create beings. How do we you know? What do you do this? Well, just like we were given some kind of uh, a internal guidance to help us decide between right and wrong we, we need to we need to embed that into the creatures that we're going to make mm, mm. they need to they need to have that kind of basic ethic so so there there could there is wisdom in in that that it is you know can be applied to to where we are um, but it's um, you know, I should say, that's not, well, it, 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 it has be, to be extracted. Be <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not, yeah, yeah. right. It ha- yeah. The, yeah. The religious people will have to work on mm-hmm. trying to. Now, you had a you had a conversion experience in, in Jerusalem a long time ago. Um, that's right. To Christianity, to kind of a belief in the basic Christian tenets. I mean, one thing you wrote in this piece about um, the next thousand years of Christianity is the long-term trend is more technology in the Christian culture. And then he wrote, what is missing and what may take several generations to supply is an understanding of the spiritual meaning of technology. And I think that is such a fascinating phrase that you never hear anyone use. What do you right. mean when you say the spiritual meaning of, the spiritual meaning of technology? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that... Um, uh, Technology has a, a spiritual dimension or direction. So, so, so th- there are probably I don't know hundreds of books written about the relationship, say, of um, humans, God, and nature. Right. So, so it's yeah. like stewardship. It's like where you know where does humans and nature and God uh, relate? But there's like zero books on like what is the relationship of technology to God, hmm. and my take on that is that technology is a divine force; that it is a an extension, an acceleration of the life force. It's an extension, acceleration of evolution through life. That its origins is actually not in human minds, but actually back at the Big Bang, that, mm. that if we trace where technology begins, it begins in this escalating cascade of ratcheting self-organization that is working in contradistinction to the entropy force. Entropy, you know, So the entire universe is kind of running down, except that there is this thread, this chain of things that are running up, that are that are getting more complicated, 
And they do that by actually accelerating how fast the rest of the universe is running down. Mm -hmm. And that chain of that arc of, of things running up begins with the very creation of matter and particles, which formed interesting structures against the odds of them of everything running down. And those molecules form dust and planets and stars, and those stars with spun galaxies, which again are all this this structure, this increase in order, is in opposition to the running down of the rest of the universe. And then on at least one planet, um, we have life, and then further structuring and ordering in a unique way, and we have minds. And so, so all the things that evolution is trying to do, and that's the question you want to ask is, well, where is evolution going? Is there a direction? And that's a very controversial question in biological circles. There's a small group of people and biologists, and I'm on their side, who say that there actually are directions. There actually is a... Um, there's directions in evolution, and technology is going in that same direction. It's, it's actually accelerating those directions. And so um, what it, the directions seem to be is, is in making as many new, complicated, interesting, self-organizing structures as possible. Mm. It's, 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 it's what I would call, it, to reduce this whole long rant to something, what it's doing is trying to increase the possibilities in the universe, increase the number of degrees of freedom, to increase mm. the, the opportunities to be something to earn a living. So what we see is more and more possibilities, and the way that reduces to you as an individual, to me as an individual, is um, every one of us is a unique set of arrangements of genes and <laughs> talents and skills and viewpoints. And we, in some ways, are assisted by all the other things around us to make the most of that set of talents or capabilities. And so I like to imagine um, the kind of the, the awful story of what if Beethoven had been born a thousand years before we invented uh, pianos and <laughs> symphonies. Yeah. And how, what a loss to the universe, to the world, and to himself that would have been. Mm. And same thing with Mozart being born before we invented um, the, the piano, or, uh, or if uh, Van Gogh had been born before we invented oil paints, mm -hmm. or Hitchcock or Lucas before we invented cinema. Their genius would have been kind of wasted that means that today, somewhere in the world, there's a Shakespeare who has been born, who's waiting for us to invent her technologies that she would need to maximize and optimize her genius so that it could be shared among us. And so we have a moral obligation to increase hmm. the amount of technology in the world, the amount of possibilities. And that's sort of what technology is doing over time, and that's sort of his role, is to increase the variety, the diversity, the options, and the possibilities that we have so that anybody who is born would be able to surprise God. And so um, <laughs> I think that's what it is. It's, it's a way of it's, it's a way of generating surprises 
And um, that's the spiritual dimension of technology. It, it makes that much more likely. One, one, one place you said, um, and to me this gets at the notion of like, okay, so, so there's just this, it's just this possibility machine, but then there's also human agency. So we, you said we can't influence the direction of technology, the direction of technologies, but we can influence its character. Yeah. So you and I had no choice about whether we became teenagers, assuming we lived that long. But we had a choice about what kind of teenagers we could be. And so technologies sort of follow a developmental pathway. Where, and, and I know this by looking at the order of technologies on different continents in prehistory when there wasn't really much influence between the continents. And so they, mm -hmm. they follow a roughly the same sequence where you, you know, you'll have domestication of dogs before pottery. You'll have, you know, invention of sewing, after pottery. There, there, there is a, a natural sequence, and so, um, which says it suggests that there's certain inevitability to technologies. Once you have the previous ones, the next ones are kind of going to happen. Right. And I would say that, you know, like once you invent electricity and copper wires and switches, you're going to invent the telephone. So the, and once you have the telephone, you're going to invent the internet. So the internet was inevitable, but the character of the internet, whether it's uh, international or transnational, whether it's commercial, whether it's private, whether it's open or closed, all those questions are not at all inevitable. Those are those are the questions of a, of a species-specific. And those answers make a huge difference to us. So, so the other image I kind of would use to illustrate this is imagine rain falling down in the valley. And the particular path of a single drop as it hits the hillside and it, it is completely unpredictable. Um, you cannot predict the path of that drop as it goes down the hill, but you can say with certainty its direction, which is downward. So, so right. it's inevitably going to go down, and collectively all the raindrops will go down, but the particular path of an individual is unpredictable. And the same thing with technology is that the, you know, at the individual product level, everything is unpredictable, cannot be predicted, but the general direction of the collective is very clear. And so... Um, those things are inevitable. And I think the fact that they're inevitable means that we still have huge amounts of choices in the character, which has a huge difference for us. And so we're engaged in that process right now with AI and social media. Those, we can't stop them. Mm -hmm. They're going to come. But we can. We have a decision about the the character of social media. Yeah. You know, all the things that we're talking about, the rules, the regulations around it, the governance of it, the social etiquette, and the same thing with AI. We'll we'll have choices there. So we have plenty of choices that make a huge difference to us. But any any efforts to try and stop it or outlaw it are f going to fail because those yeah. things are inevitable at the large scale. Do you ever? I I. I I like the language of, of spiritual technologies, of thinking of, you know, meditation and ritual and virtues, even like, I don't know, the Amish example you gave of like a practice of discernment that then, that is a tool for choosing how we live and what you do and not do. And 
you, what do you think of that language of spiritual technologies? I, I, I think it should be developed. I think um, people other than me should uh, should run with it and try and um, uh, try to strengthen and deepen it. Um, I, I think, uh, unfortunately, for a lot of spiritual people, they tend to categorize technology as an enemy, as as devilish, as uh, satanic, as something that um, is at odds with our humanity and certainly at odds with divinity. Um, and so reversing that and thinking of it as a divine force and looking at the spiritual dimensions, I think would be really fantastic. Um, and it would be, it would maybe help people begin to um, adjust their view because, you know, there's going to be more more technology coming. I yeah. mean, um, we are going to become more technological ourselves. And, and, and the, the funny thing about this is it's a two-faced deal. Um, you know, we at times feel as if you know, we work for technology, that we're the slaves to it, that it's our master. And at the same time, it's very clear that, you know, that we are the curators of this. Yeah. And I think <laughs> that we have to accept the fact that both of these things are true all the time, that, it, that we are both the parent of technology and its child, mm -hmm. and that we are both the master of technology and a slave at the same time all the time. And that, and that kind of... Um, that kind of paradox is difficult for a lot of people, but I think it's closer to the actual relationship that we're going to have with it, where we are both the created and the creator at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I feel like that's where, you know, that's where these spiritual technologies precisely can come in to help us inhabit that space and work with it generatively. Yeah. And and, right. I mean, and and get to right. that get between direction and character like what yeah get to that. almost any mystic of any religion will tell you that basically there's a necessary paradox at the heart mm -hmm. of any spiritual belief and so um, if you get to the paradox it means you're you're at the root it's not like it means it's wrong no it means it's true yeah do you have grandchildren I don't you don't. Uh, I was, I was, no. was going to ask you how, if you did have grandchildren, how would you, so, you know, you know, let's say these humans who are now growing up with, you know, iPad, you know, working with iPads when they're three and having phones when they're nine, yeah. um, or maybe six, uh, how would you talk to them, this generation? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, about, yeah, been... about parenting their technology early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been polling people as I go along, asking them what their kind of um, policies and approaches are. Yeah. And it's really remarkable at the diversity. I mean, I've had, um, I've had, you know, met people who are, you know, yeah, yeah, we give, we give the babies from the beginning, the whole thing. And others like, no way, you know, not until they're 16, whatever it is. And, um, uh, and everything in between. So, um, I, I, I don't know if, if I, um, in the particulars, I, I, I don't know if I have anything to offer 
in particular because actually I don't even know right now. And also, I will have to say that it probably depends on the kids. I, I don't think yeah. we, you can have a universal rule. It depends on the kids, the environment, etc. Um, but I do think, um, in, in terms of kind of the, the, the spiritual side of it, is that I think um, almost having some constraints as a matter of principle would be helpful. And it's sort of like when you are an artist, what you discover is having constraints actually is a lot of the source of creativity. Yeah. And that, um, you know, there's, I, I think a lot of, you know, schooling is really about character building and training. And part of what you want to do is, you know, you have delayed gratification and all these other yeah. very important things. And I think having constraints almost like, I wouldn't say they're arbitrary, but I think that is part of what schooling should be about. And um, uh, you can make it clear that in some ways that this is these aren't like fundamental basic principles of the universe that you can't have a, a phone until you're 16, but you can talk about the fact that um, you're working with constraints and that, um, you know, wh whatever it is, um, these are things that, you know, your family does. And um, even if they're done traditionally, that's what they are. But I think uh, you, you, can cast, you can cast through constraints in different ways. And I think there are healthier ways to do it than others. Have you ever heard of um, uh, Teilhard de Chardin and his, the, the noosphere? Yeah, so he was a French priest. Yeah, well, and who, a paleontologist. He was working and on... And a paleontologist yeah. who had a very um, elaborate um, mystical global sense of view. And I share his sense of, of the global something that we're making, the, the global super organism that we are yeah, creating. It, it kind of reminds I, me of the technium, the way you talk about yeah, it. It's different. Right. But, you know, he talked about the noosphere, which would be... That 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 human invention and you know he didn't I don't think he used the word technology but essentially that's what he was talking about human invention and what what our minds create would would wrap, would overwrap the but the biosphere and right change so it. he had kind of a vision of this of this layer around the globe yeah. that was a thinking news nose mm -hmm. like a thinking a thinking layer a thinking sphere that surrounded us and 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 I do think that that's happening and it's not just the 7 billion people who are all connected to each other but it's actually the you know the 7 billion AIs plus hmm. the 7 billion people uh, together and that we are making this sort of global super organism the the one the one small detail that I would diverge from um, Shardan is mm -hmm. um, he believed that there was an endpoint an omega point that this yeah. was all moving to a single endpoint and I think if you look at the grand cosmic story that we're not moving to input that we're radiating outward into more and more it's, it's like a radiation outward rather than a convergence to a single endpoint that mm. um, it's it's a process of diversification outward expansion and that there are multiple destinations multiple trajectories and that we're moving and that we're, we're not converging to a single endpoint. Right. But other than that, I think the idea of 
the, the real frontier, the, the, the real, the, the thing that's even bigger than AI, which is going to be really, it's going to be, you know, AI is probably the most powerful force in the next hundred years. But the thing that's even bigger than that is the fact that we're making a global superorganism of some sort that will have effects way beyond anything that we can imagine. AI will be part of that, but not the whole thing. It's just, we have never made um, a planetary something that works in real time. And we're going to be shocked by what will happen when we have you know, a billion people working together on something in real time. Mm, mm. And we'll be shocked even when a million people do it. And um, right. I still remember growing up in the 60s, a real shock was when Woodstock first happened. <laughs> because it seemed to come out of nowhere. It mm. was all of a sudden, uh, the same thought occurred to, you know, half a million people. This thought was, you know, I need to be at this farm. And they all showed up. They were all shocked that so many others showed up, and it was sort of a mark of what was happening in the culture at large. And I think we're going to have kind of these Woodstocks where suddenly several million people will, will come together and use these new tools of communication around the globe, and they'll be from all different countries, and they will work together in real time to do something collaboratively, and people will just be dumbfounded that, oh my gosh, that's possible. What happened? Why? You know. And so that would be the beginning of the second frontier, where we have true globalism. I mean, yeah. it's, right? People talk about globalism. We haven't had globalism no. yet. No. That's coming. And when we have a planetary scale institutions and planetary scale governance, we're in a whole different level. And there will be planetary, we have planetary problems, and we need planetary yeah, solutions, but yeah. we're going to even have new planetary problems created by this thing. <laughs> right. And so right. um, yeah. it's, it's, it's a whole other yeah. order, and that's where we're headed mm. after AI. Mm. So, so I, I, I kind of, I, yeah, so I'm really glad I, I'm really glad I, I brought up Teo de Chardin and, and elicited that thinking. I, um, I, I there's one quote of his that I just kept thinking about when I was reading you. Um, uh, I mean, partly inspired by just like thinking about how what is a technology and that fire, and of course, I mean, you know, everybody knows this, but someone just really thinking about the fire was a technology, right? And so, anyway, this quote of his, and also, I guess, and maybe this is indulgent because this also kind of flows in with my thinking about like what are the spiritual technologies we need to mm. to to meet this incredible possibility that you're describing, this thing we're moving yeah. towards. So so he said, someday after mastering the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And then, <laughs> then for a second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. The technologies of love. Well, you know, um, I think we're going to be surprised by how deeply emotional will uh, relationships that we'll have with the things that we're going to invent coming soon, the mm. robots and mm. things like that. Because we're going to program emotion into them. <laughs> That's actually not hard to do. Uh, we're going to program ethics into them, which is not hard to do once we decide what kind of ethics we want to put into them. And so I, I, I think we're, we're, we'll have relationships that are going to really 
you know, play with our minds, uh, and and we're not really ready for how how much love we might have for these, and maybe even how much love they will express back. If you can imagine, you know, a dog that could talk to you, you know, and so um, uh, so so I I think that um, we're we're going we're going to um, start to make these things. And, 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 I, and I think that um, uh, it's going to be a real challenge. Um, and, and, and as I said, we know how to program in ethics and morality uh, and even emotion into the machines, but what we don't know yet is what we want to put in. It turns out that we think we as humans are highly ethical and moral, but it turns out that our morality and ethical is like really shallow, very inconsistent, right. horrible. Yeah. And um, as we try to program these into the machines, that process is going to make us better. Mm. As you know, we it's like mm. parenting. Mm. It's like we will realize where we're insufficient, and we're going to actually become better humans as we try to make our machines better as well mm. oh this is so much fun um i so i we need to we need to um come to a close i guess that that's such a that's a wonderful way to lead into kind of this vast question i wanted to just ask you to start thinking about as we finish like how your well i want to say one thing because we're not gonna have time for this but i just absolutely love where your book, the inevitable, on is it the inevitable? The, is that what it's called? Yes. Yes, the inevitable where it ends is on questioning or close to the end, on just mm-hmm. the asking the power of questioning and how questions become more important. Uh, the quality of our questions becomes perhaps more important than the quality of our answers. Um, but anyway, and maybe that's related to this. Maybe it's not that technologies that generate questions are going to be valued. Such a contrast to like how we only deal with competing answers now, right? And yeah. just tie ourselves up into these ridiculous knots. So yeah. but this, this question of, you know, what it means to be human and how you're mm. through all of the, the, the kind of vast perspective you bring to this and being a part of the internet in the early days mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. thinking about technology, thinking about the future of technology, like how does your, how does your own sense of what it means to be human continue to evolve, you know, right now? Yeah, um, I, you know, I was I actually did some research because I heard a quote that was attributed to Pablo Picasso, which he said, "You know, um, computers are are useless because they only give you answers." And I actually did some research and found out he actually he actually did say that um, in the 1960s, and that was sort of a real prompt because it appears that more and more that if you want a good answer, you're going to ask a machine. Um, it turns out that machines are actually really good at giving you answers. And um, not just simple answers. I think they're going to increasingly give us answers to complicated questions. But it, but it, it does appear that so far, machines are not very good at a- asking questions. Mm. So we have this world where basically answers have become cheap and ubiquitous and um, pervasive and um, they're everywhere. And so what's 
much scarcer are good questions. And good questions are kind of like a discovery. They're kind of like um, a way of, um, of exploring, like what if. And um, it turns out that they're not very efficient. And so what machines are really good at are all the things where efficiency counts, where productivity and efficiency counts. And those are the kinds of tasks we're going to give to the machines. And we're kind of, as humans, left with things that are inefficient, which happens to be the things that we enjoy most, like discovery or innovation. Innovation is inherently uh, not efficient, or science, <laughs> right. for that matter. Science is inherently inefficient, because if you are 100% efficient as a scientist, you're just not learning anything new. <laughs> so, you know, trial and error, there's the error part, there's the failure, there's the dead ends, there's trying prototypes, all these things are the essential part of um, exploring, trying, discovering, which are all inherently inefficient. And so are human relationships. And so we're kind of, humans are kind of, we're expert at wasting time. We're expert at, at, um, at things where efficiency and programmability don't, don't count for much. And I think that's as the robots rise and the AIs rise, that's one of the answers to the questions about what we're going to do. And I think there's plenty of room for us to explore, create, invent, innovate, love, chat, you know, experience things, all of which are inherently inefficient and not things that the machines are good at. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, there's a, a, you know, as you're suggesting, there's a kind of a larger resonance of this idea that, that of asking a question, of, of, um, of asking why, not just why the first time, but why the why, 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 down as far as we can go. And I think it, I think in some ways that does echo some structure of the universe, that it's, hmm probably built on a question rather than an answer <laughs> that 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 i mean it's very likely that the universe is really a kind of a question rather than the answer to anything and so i think um i think that's that's why we resonate with a question a good question so much rather than just with a smart answer and and when you talk about like when you were using the Amish example of like our lives with technology, like how do we, if this this power we have not to determine the direction but to determine the character, like it's the questions we're going to ask, right? Like okay, so what will this do to my time with my family? Right. Those that's yeah. the questions are also the tools we have for 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 building the character of our technology. Right. Yeah. I mean the answer the answer to a good question is. More and better questions. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has just been delightful. And I'm just really glad you're out there with the questions you have and living them and bringing what you know to other people. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. Thank you for your great questions. You're <laughs> obviously not an AI. You're a human. <laughs> I take that as a great compliment. <laughs> I hope our paths will cross in person somewhere one day. 
Yes, yeah. I, I do too. And um, thank you for um, your audience. And um, I, I did thoroughly enjoy this. I, I would, uh, and, and speaking of questions, you asked some great questions that have never been asked before, which is always a, a joy. Uh, for someone being interviewed. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That makes me happy. And we'll let you know what's happening with this. And we do have a beautiful, beautiful listening audience, so you'll hear from them. Great. (laughs) No doubt. Okay. Bye-bye. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.